This podcast is sponsored by Australian Christian College, a network of schools committed to student wellbeing, character development and academic improvement. Welcome to the Inspiration Project, where well-known Christians share their stories to inspire young people in their faith and life. Here's your host, Brendan Corr. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Inspiration Project podcast, where we get a chance to talk with Christians of significance who have been able to find the expression of their faith through their career and their vocation. This morning, we're having a conversation with Dr. Owen Strand. Dr. Strand is Provost and Research Professor of Theology at Grace Bible Theological Seminary. He's previously studied at uh, other programs at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, where he gained his PhD. Uh, He's studied at the Evangelical Divinity School, where he obtained his Master of Divinity, and at Bowden College in Brunswick, Maine, in the northeast of America. He's written several books, Reenchanting Humanity, A Theology of Mankind, The Pastor as Public Theologian, Reclaiming a Lost Vision, and more recently, his latest book, The War on Men, Why Society Hates Them and Why We Need Them. Dr. Strand, it's very nice to meet you. Thank you for giving us your time. You must be a very busy academic with uh, with so much to do. Well, I, I I do stay fairly busy in order to keep myself out of trouble. So thank you very much for having me on, Brendan. I appreciate it. Thank you so much for your time. It's a very uh, topical um, subject that you've chosen to explore in your in your most recent book, and I, and I want to get into that some of that uh, significance. Uh, during our conversation, but I wonder whether you could unpack for us. You've you've lived in different parts of America. Some of those uh, places that you've studied, some of the places that you've worked have been Midwest, Northeast, uh, Illinois, around the Great Lakes area. Tell us a little bit about your story. How have you ended up exactly where you are? Yeah, it's been very interesting. There's been no master plan uh, to be where's Waldo. Uh, that's an American reference to a little, little guy who pops up all over the place. Yeah. We um, know that. I think we call him where's Wally over here in Australia. Where's Wally? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, it translates then. Yeah. So I had no, no idea I would be born on the coast of Maine in new England and then go to Washington DC and Louisville, Kentucky and Chicago, and then Louisville again, and then Kansas city and now in Arkansas. But yes, I have been able uh, to have the blessing of of seeing a lot of America and even living and working in a lot of America. And um, it just really owes to God's providence. And it's taught me that as much as you can teach about the providence or the sovereignty of God in a kind of textbook way, this is the definition. In terms of actually living out God's plan for your life, it's not dull. It's not boring. And uh, God will surprise you in some different ways. But uh he seems to to take joy in doing so. So I'm along for the ride. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested to hear that generalized no master plan, that it was seizing opportunity as they came or responding to invitations. Um, what led you? What was the thing that was was allowing you to explore such a diversity of experience? Was it family? Was it career? That's a great question. I wanted to be in Christian ministry when I got to my college and especially my sophomore year, but I had no I had no again plan by which that was going to happen. And uh that's really been a theme of my life. 
Um, my father was not in ministry. He's a Christian man, uh, but he wasn't a pastor. A lot of my peers in Christian ministry uh, were trained in a pastoral context or missionary home or academic home. That's not what what is true of my background. Uh, so I'm in college and my roommate in college goes to D.C. and hears about a pastoral internship and tells me about it. And long story short, I apply and end up accepted. And so then I go to Washington, D.C. And then while I'm there, I'm told about Southern Seminary in Louisville, Kentucky, where Al Mohler is the president, and I end up going there. And uh, then when I'm at Southern, I end up hearing about a job at Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. And so I go there and do further study. And it's just been like that throughout my life. Mm -hmm. Everyone has their own God-written story. That's mine. But yeah, uh, uh, it's not been... It's not been dull, and it's it's caused me some amount of vocational confusion at different points. Mm. Um, but but I, I suppose God has used all of that back and forth to teach me to trust Him and rely on Him, even when I don't know what's up ahead, because I surely don't. Mm. Uh, you you made a comment when some of our first remarks about teaching the sovereignty of God as a, as a concept, and then how you experience that being lived out. I want to come back to that. But clearly faith is a fundamental part of your story, part of your uh, identity. Can you share with us how did how did that happen? How did you become somebody that was so committed to the idea of faith and to, to service of God? I grew up in a Christian home, and from a young age, I knew that I needed the grace of God. I knew that I was not sufficiently holy to be accepted by God as I stood. And so uh, growing up in that context, you hear the gospel message uh, from the scriptures. And the gospel message is very simply that Jesus Christ died on the cross to save sinners and rose again from the grave to give those same sinners eternal life. And we lay hold of that forgiveness and even eternal life itself when we repent of our sin, which means turning from our sin, rejecting our sin, breaking up with it, if you will, and then we follow Christ. We we set our face to follow Christ. And all of that does not occur by some virtuous motion of our own heart. All of that occurs ultimately as God works in us and God gives us a zeal for the things of God and takes away the zeal we formerly had for fallen things, for sinful things. And so that's true in my own story. When you become a Christian, of course, it doesn't mean that you get zapped with mm. a magic wand and you never sin again. Mm. You never have to battle thinking wrong things, desiring wrong things, saying wrong things, acting in wrong ways. But it does mean that you are given what the Bible calls a new heart, a new nature. And now you want to please God. You want to please your heavenly father. And you're given the spirit's power to do that. And uh, now you now you see it as a joyful thing that God is in control of your life. And it's not mm. scary. Mm. It's not scary as it is when you're not a Christian, that God is in control. Now mm. it's actually the most comforting truth there is. Uh, Dr. Strand, I, I don't mean to probe too personally, but you, you spoke there very persuasively about the attractions of, of the things that have fallen, the things that are, that are not honorable. And, and I think everyone who has an exposure to Christianity or at least an evangelical notion of Christianity would understand all of those those uh, distracting temptations that we know are not good for us. Hmm. With, without 
um, making this too personal, you've now enjoyed a measure of career success. You've become quite well-known, measure of, of fame. Were those things that you aspired to? Was was that sense of prominence and influence and significance part of what you were hoping for or drawn to? <laughs> That's a great question. My kids, I have three kids, 15, 12, and 9. And they ask me sometimes, Dad, because I'll go and speak at an event, and they'll say, Dad, are you famous? Mm. Uh, because there are people who will know who I am at a Christian church mm. sometimes. And I will say, when we go to the airport, child, there will not be a single person who will know who I am. So no, mm. I am not I am not famous. No so I like to, <laughs> that's right. The, they have not yet hounded me when I go to the supermarket. So, um, but I appreciate your kind words. Um, I would say that, yes, I was, I was driven from an early age. And I think a lot of young men want to make their mark in the world. They want to be strong from birth. Mm. They don't want to be weak. They want to be heroic and they want Mm. their life to count. Mm. And, and that was true of me. That instinct has really been wired out of boys, or at least folks have tried to take it out of boys, but it's wired into boys by God himself, I believe. And I see that in my background. Um, I didn't have a strong notion of earning a lot of money. I've never been that concerned with earning a lot of money. Uh, I'm thankful for what God gives. Um, I wanted to be a basketball coach Mm. uh, from the time I was young, in particular because I really enjoy young people. Um, and I love sports. I love the drama and the intensity and the struggle and the approximation of the hero's quest that you find in a small form in sports today. It's really one of the last heroic theaters we have mm. in the modern world. So that's what I aspired to. But no, I, I, I've had all the normal battles with pride and vanity and mm. desire for fame, um, affluence that any anyone has or many people have. And I've had to die to those sins. And even today in Christian ministry, you have to really watch your heart mm. because it's a very dangerous thing to be in ministry, but then have worldly desires for fame or money or prominence mm. creep into that. Mm. And so I'm not here to present myself as one who has navigated those struggles perfectly because I haven't, but I can tell you that by the grace of God, I want I want to pass the test and yes. I pray that I will. Amen. Amen. I, I... I appreciate your comments, and and as I said, I understand that they may have been treading into some personal reflections that weren't anticipated in this conversation. I want, I want to come back to that if you're okay for us, because we're going to talk about the the focus of your recent work around the erosion of of uh, what you hold to be a rightful notion of masculinity through culture, and there's a lot for us to say about that. But I'd love for us to circle back and revisit what might be your thoughts on any sort of parallel uh, erosion in terms of the evangelical church where passivity and and lack of ambition and just live quietly and don't aspire to have a, an impact may be one of the messages that, that the modern church uh, is being drawn into presenting for boys or, or for any of us. But anyway, we'll come back to that as we go. Sure. You, you've introduced that that notion that you, you have 
a belief that our modern society or the, the society in which we find ourselves is with the most generous interpretation confused about how it is to understand gender roles and possibly at worst intentionally uh, confusing the, the members of its society. Is that too strong a statement to summarise your position? No, it's not. We're fundamentally in an age that values safety more than risk. Mm. And it's seen as toxic, for example, to be a risk taker if you're a boy or a young man. I can scarcely think of a worse framing than that Mm. for adulthood and for manhood Mm. and for Christian maturity, guy or girl alike, than that. We all want to be safe. You can see walls behind me. I'm not I'm not broadcasting from a forest glade, you know, open to nature and animal to invade the podcast. So it's a there's a right form of safety that we all very much need to seek and pursue. Mm. Uh, you train your kids as a father or a mother in all sorts of rudiments of living wisely, uh, to use a better word than safety. Wisdom is the is the greater category than safety, but safety has been allowed in our time to uh, usurp wisdom and and dethrone it. And so now what we train our kids to be is safe, not wise. And that's, an again, to re- reuse this word once more, that's a tragedy because what is going to happen if you train children to want to be safe above all is that they are not going to have an appropriate instinct to take risks. Mm. And life in a fallen world necessitates that you must often act with the wind in your face Mm. and you must often venture into unsafe territory uh, if you are going to make a difference in any Mm. number of areas. Um, so, So one of the absolute worst things you can do is platform safety as Mm. the highest virtue or the greatest good. It is no such thing. And that's had tremendous effects in all sorts of directions. But yes, one of them is to basically extract the very nature of boyhood from boys, Mm. such Mm. that if they show any boyishness at all, uh, it's a terrible thing. It's a crime against humanity. When, of course, boys need shepherding and training and formation. Mm. But a lot of that is supposed to come not in a punitive way or a medicinal way through pills. It's supposed to come through a father's arm around the shoulder, speaking calmly and lovingly, and sometimes just a bit sternly into his son's ear, such Mm. that his son is shaped and helped and guided. Mm. But uh, here again, we've lost many fathers from our world as well. Where do you think this started? What were the beginnings of it? Post-war, the the notion of the, the explosion of the 60s, 70s, was it the fallout from the the proliferation in the 80s? Where do you see the beginnings of this preoccupation with being safe? Or is it something more recent? Is it about not causing offence and being politically correct? In the 1970s, the political philosopher Irving Kristol wrote a marvelous essay on this very theme. I cite it in this book, The War on Men, which just came out. And Crystal talked about 
the loss of grand figures and grand narrative. Mm. And this is something that dovetails with the rise of postmodern philosophy in the last 40 to 50 years, where there is no grand narrative to life. Mm. There is no higher truth. Uh, there is no telos, end, goal mm. uh, to existence itself. Um, we all have our own truth and communities have their truths and you sort of muddle along as best you can. <clears throat> and that's an altogether deficient understanding of life because life is to be lived as a great adventure for the glory mm. of God. Mm. So is that in and of itself the the root of the problem or has it been conflated with other ideologies, other agendas that have sort of harnessed themselves together to um, promulgate this, this uh, what you see is this attack on godly masculinity? Well, I think it is at some level the loss of Christianity from the society because Christianity at its best does not tuck you in at night and say the goal of life is just to be safe. Mm. The Christian message is all about light entering darkness it's all about God coming to Abram in Genesis 12 and saying, go. It's all about Jesus in the New Testament gathering his disciples after his resurrection and saying, go and make mm. disciples. And so there's this gravity and energy and momentum in the Christian story that mm. you cannot miss, but that has been robbed mm. of Christianity. It's been extracted from Christianity. And as Christianity has been largely pushed out of the mainstream of Western life, that means that we've lost a sense of adventure, of risk, of going in the name of God. Mm. You think even about how imperialism and colonialism are treated. I'm not here to offer some full-throated defense of either, but it, but the, the rejection of each of those uh, realities dovetails with the broader postmodern attack on the Christian message. Hmm. So what I think I'm hearing you describe is that the, the the Christian framework, the Christian paradigm of existence held the notion that there was purpose and that to achieve purpose, well, I, I guess um, there's a book that's um, written, written recently, Biblical Critical Theory, and in that, the author unpacks the notion of a, a narrative that outnarrates even the current stories and the idea that then the loss of purpose is, is uh, robbing the world of the sense of, of where things are heading, that we, you know, the, the doctrine of sin in itself suggests we, we need to be active in changing. There has, this is what we've got is not what it should be, and we should be active agents in forging a better future. Is, is that something of what you're describing? Yes, uh, it is. <clears throat> I would differ with the author of that text on a number of counts, uh, and I would not encourage Christians to use or apply critical theory. Uh, I, I think the resources we need to re-enchant the world are all in scripture itself and in Christian theology as, as traditionally understood, if you will. But I definitely think that 
the loss of story from people's lives is a huge part of why there is such little purpose and meaning and worth in the existences of many people around the world, in your country and mine, and again, across the world. Suicide rates among young men today are sky high in America, for example, and it's baffling. It baffles many people because material conditions are are relatively very good in terms of prosperity, in terms of money, in terms of earning power. They're not what they were. Uh, our economy has been suppressed in recent years, and that's sad to see. But still, we're in a very prosperous age, relatively speaking, and yet people are hopeless. They're absolutely hopeless. And I think it's not just because of the loss of story. It's because of the loss of true story. Yeah. That's what you need. You don't yeah. just need a story. There's still lots of stories around. The Marvel movies give you a story. Uh, and that can distract you for a few hours. And you can even engage that story. And, and and it can even impact you in terms of great literature or great movies or great plays in the theater. But what you need is not just a compelling narrative. You need a true story. Amen. And that's what's missing. And that's what the Bible gives you. The Bible is not a sterile collection of dates and names and boring moral principles. The Bible has data in all sorts of directions. But ultimately, the Bible is the grand story that gives your life, your tiny little story, immense significance. Your life echoes unto eternity. Mm. So if you take that away from people, if that is taken away from them, or they simply lose faith in it because they believe other stories for a time, mm. then then nothing but chaos is going to result. Nothing good will come of that. Mm. I, I think I hear exactly what you're saying, Dr. Strand, the, the, the notion of the the narrative that you're advocating of the the purpose, the hardwiredness of some of the attributes that are placed in gender very clearly is in the context of other versions of gender politics, identity politics, intersectionality, which have their own story, right? They've got their own symbols and their own explanation of what's going on and how best to achieve those sorts of things. And you're offering or you're proposing a true story, something that is rested on something beyond philosophy, beyond the constructs of of uh, the, the thinking of of the world. Let me ask you this question: If if uh, where where would you how would you answer a, a critic from one of those other camps that that would say uh, gender politics, for example? This is just a your your book is just a version of the notion of gender politics. Well, they're free to say that. Uh, and I'm glad for intellectual exchange. I'd rather have intellectual exchange than none. Uh, I'd rather have fires in the dark, even by warring parties than complete bleakness. Mm. But I would say, no, um, the reason why my writing has any ring of truth to it, to the degree it does is because it reflects God's truth. Mm. Uh, and God's truth is premised not simply in compelling ideals or symbolic signs. Uh, God's truth is predicated in time and space. Mm. Uh, it comes to us in history, and God stakes a claim not simply in the human imagination, but in lived reality. 
the incarnation, which we're going to celebrate globally in a mm. few weeks' time, mm. uh, <clears throat> came in time and space. God could have, I suppose, perhaps transmitted some sort of salvation uh, to us in some weird spiritual dimension uh, without sending his son. I don't really think he would have done that, of course. Uh, but God can God can do what God wishes to do. What did God do, though? God sent his son, born of a virgin. And so God has very much claimed not merely the category of true truth or transcendent truth. Mm. God has claimed history. History is God's. And um, woe betide the Christian, therefore, who gives up on the history mm. God has claimed. Don't relinquish the claim <laughs> that God has made. And I think that's what is so significant uh, for re-enchanting people's worldviews. It's it's helping people understand that 2,000 years ago, just about, Jesus walked where we walk, and, and mm. Jesus had a flesh and blood body as we have. And, and God is not shy about uh, entering our world, mm. uh, much as we might like to keep him out. That's an interesting picture that you're describing for for um, our listeners the even the phrase re-enchanting the world of theology of mankind one of your earlier books there is one of the features of modern the modern world the the post-industrial modernist perspective was the disenchanting of the world the the taking of of fantasy as it was seen and locating those things in in grounded truth as it was understood what do you mean by the notion of re-enchanting the world great question i mean much what you just said that we must understand the world not in materialist gray but in imax high definition spectra color as made by god mm. god god has not given us an anodyne creation Mm. where there is no joy, there is no taste, there is no delight, there is no beauty. And frankly, alongside those things, there is no pain, mm. searing pain. There is no suffering. There is no temptation. There is no loss. God has given us a consequential world. Uh, God has has given us a multidimensional experience of his own desire, of his own freedom of creation. And... um. And God wants us mm. as um, embodied souls to experience the range of the human mm. condition. Mm. And so I want to restore all of that. I don't want to yes. just restore the get you saved part of Christianity, though that's everything. That's everything. Yeah. I, I want to restore the whole range of emotion and experience and affection mm. uh, that is supposed to be a part of life in this world. Mm. And um, that's that, too, is a part of re-enchanting the world. It's very interesting. I was at I was at Oxford and Cambridge just a few weeks ago on a tour and um, was reflecting on C.S. Lewis's famous journey to Christian faith. A key part of that journey, there's different dimensions people focus on with Lewis, um, but to plunge us into Lewis Arcana here for a minute. Key part of it was C.S. Lewis as a materialist, denying mm. the existence of the supernatural. So living in a disenchanted world where there's yeah, just yeah. cause and effect and there's nothing supernatural occurring. Lewis had a friend who had gotten very caught up in spiritualism and in seances 
and engaging darkness and these sorts of things and sparing your viewership and listenership the details this man it appears from my reckoning as a as a christian became demon possessed and i i do mean demon possessed and the man for two weeks time lived with c.s lewis and the man was so tormented whatever precisely was going on with him that c.s lewis as a materialist mind you would have to hold him down on the ground he would tremble and shake so violently he was having visions of demons and spiritual beings just at bay from him and the experience is a key part of why c.s lewis crosses the line from materialism or secularism as we would probably call it today to belief in the supernatural and i would actually say it's the opposite the way this is often presented today at leading establishments and all the fine colleges and universities that students want to go to across the world Mm. it's the opposite of how they present it that in order to understand the world you have to write all of that off yes to understand the world you actually have to embrace all of that and welcome it in not in terms of being demon possessed god willing but in terms of of seeing the world in in its dimensional reality yeah so in, in in lots of ways what what i'm hearing you unpack for us is that notion where the idea of disenchantment has come to mean uh, removing removing naivety you've actually spun that on its head and said a a more profound understanding of reality includes the elements of the supernatural and a proper view of our existence a proper view of our of our world necessarily has to take into account the reality of a spiritual dimension yeah that's thick reality and thin reality is you're just a collection of atoms bumping around together um people do what they do merely because they're cogs in a machine there's no greater purpose to life there's no ought in the cosmos that's not thick reality your mm. materialist vision your secularist vision your atheistic mm. vision your skeptical vision that's not thick mm. that's thin mm. i'm over here not cuz i'm better than you but i'm over here by the grace of god understanding transcendence understanding mm. that there must be a creator of all of this understanding that uh a tiny baby enter entered the world sent from heaven in order that that tiny baby would grow up 30 years later or so and die on a cross and in so doing effect atonement for my sins that's thick reality thin mm. reality is avoiding all of that mm. and the notion that you're just describing of of the nativity the the preciousness of the incarnation but the the council also not to restrict god's activity in the world to that event and that period of time but that he remains intimately connected intimately involved with the functions of our world our lives our society that that's part of your theology of mankind yes nicely said it's kind of like families um of a middle or upper class tone who, when you get together for the holidays, only discuss polite things. Mm. Uh, you avoid the sticky stuff, right? You avoid the tough topics. You're not necessarily hashing out the meaning of life with your 
uncle who clearly disagrees with you. You know, you talk about sports teams and pleasantries and, uh, and then you go out on the porch and watch some sports and, and, uh, and go home at the end of the night. That's not thick reality. That's thin reality. Mm. And that's what is, is sold to us from high culture today. Mm. Uh, that's what, that's what the arts to switch the conversation back to the arts. That's what our arts communicate to us over and over again, that there's nothing beyond this. Not that's, that's not deep engagement with the world. Mm. That's polite conversation over the holidays. Mm. What Christianity does at its best. And I will admit that all churches do not, do not show this necessarily, but Christianity at its best doesn't invite you to a stiff, Mm. polite conversation where you don't talk about anything real. Mm. It invites you to a live rollicking discussion where there's pipe smoke and there's merriment behind you. And then somebody gets into a fight outside and then, and then you're hashing out the mysteries of life with people who are really listening to you. And at the end of it, you all sing songs in the halls of Kings together or something like this. That's, Mm. That's thick reality. And that's mm. what people are longing for. Mm. Um, but they're not going to find it on little screens and uh, in sterile classrooms and in secularist paradigms. Yeah. And it, it sounds an awful lot like the New Testament. It sounds like Paul engaging with the philosophers and writing his treaties as the epistles of this is r- the reality of the world. This is, it hits our lives. It actually makes a difference to how we do family, how we do work, how we do commerce. It has to touch every part of of how we show up in the world. Yeah, and and there's an aversion in all of us to the pain and and the struggle and the risks. There's that word again mm. that real life bring. Ah. Mm. Uh, you know to have a child is to risk something awful befalling your child. Mm. Um, and and growing and maturing actually as a father or mother is mm. not thinking you can control your child and everything around them. Growing, mm. maturing is realizing, okay, I darn sure better do everything I can to disciple this child in the Christian faith and train them and right and wrong and uh, and how to think well critically. But mm. ultimately, I can't control them. Mm. And so there's this terrifying reality of releasing them into the world. Mm. But that's real life. Mm. Real life is not a sanitized, anesthetized mm. life. Real life is risk. Real life is marrying someone you're in love with. Mm. But but you probably barely know. Mm. And then navigating, God willing, for 50 or 60 or 70 years, Mm. the ups and downs of life together. And by the way, the personal ups and downs each of you brings that Mm. necessitate not sterility around a holiday dinner table and polite conversation, but Mm. real getting into each other's battles and sin struggles and pastimes and backgrounds. Um, But all of it, all of it, Brendan, is worth it. That's what we mm. have to say above all. It's not just that it's exciting yeah. to do it. It's worth it. And yeah. what the reformers recover in their era in the 16th century is that it's not only just generically worth it. All of life is quorum Deo. All of life is lived unto God. It's not the priests alone who live unto God. Every person is a priest who is a Christian, is a priest unto God. Mm. And so 
when you are doing the hard work as a mother of training your kids uh, day by day, when you are doing the hard work, husband to wife of saying, when you are doing uh, the hard work of building in your vocation, um, when you are a student or a young person and you are denying the flesh again, all of that is quorum deo. It, it, it's not just that you're in a story and it's a good story at the end of the th- at the end of the book. It's that right now matters. Every moment matters. You you mentioned C.S. Lewis and some reflections that you've been having on him with a recent trip. The way you're unpacking this, Doctor Strand, sounds very much like the the C.S. Lewis reflections on free will. The the notion of why did God create the notion or the possibility that things could go wrong. And the fundamental conclusion was because it's worth it when it goes right. That world that has the beauty and the richness and the taste, and you described it so beautifully a few sentences ago, but it also has the possibility of pain and disappointment, that that is worth it. It, it is worth a full experience of the best is worth the experience of the the other. Uh, am I summarizing some of your thoughts appropriately? You are. <clears throat> um, Lewis and I might tangle over free will to some degree. Uh, I would more straightforwardly confess the sovereignty of God in all things probably than, than he would in certain respects. But I find Lewis a profound thinker, and I definitely think he's onto something uh, when he is discussing the worth itness mm. of this great enterprise of of life, and I I think to go all the way up, I, I I sense we're probably concluding soon, but to go all the way up, I don't want to read creatureliness onto God because we yeah. must not do so. He is Creator, we are creature. It's vice versa. But God represents Himself in Scripture as a God who loves to love, for mm. example. And so I wouldn't use the term risk of God, meaning uh, attempt an outcome he's he can't secure. But I would say God definitely enters into relationship with humanity yeah. uh, and and kickstarts this whole venture yeah. and invests our lives with immense worth and yeah. potential and dignity and purpose. And lets us do things. I think if we were writing the story, we would think we shouldn't do that. God, Mm. just write us as automatons, write us as robots in this story. Mm. And you just, you do it. You do it. We'll watch you do it. Yeah. And that's not at all what God does. God calls us to live lives that are at once microscopically small and at once epically significant. Yes. Yes, and and that extraordinary, extraordinary gift of of our own incarnation that we are given this gift of time, with the limits and the constraints of of our humanity that allows us to experience wonder and surprise and anticipation and hope and all those things that give us a full life, a full experience, are completely dependent on living a constrained humanity. Yeah. I'm not trying to get us into any societal debates or something, you know, England versus other societies. So, so bracket that 
but just being in London uh, and seeing the statues that this these societies have erected to great figures. You go to Trafalgar Square, and there is this massive statue of Lord Nelson, mm. who leads England to victory over the French, the Imperial French, in 1805 and dies for it. And again, not to get into the particulars of this society against that one, but when you look up at it, you're transported, you're 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 taken to a vision of humanity that's greater than mm-hmm. you would otherwise think. And um and then you recognize that there's something far beyond a great naval figure. Mm. Uh, forgotten as he is, people walk past these statues, by the way, without a second thought, without a glance at them. And I, I almost couldn't, couldn't make my way through London. There are so many mm. statues. I love the grandeur they represent. I love that they convey the nobility of the human person and the potential of the human person. But far greater than that is the grandeur of God, is the greatness of God, is the God who uh, is acting in our lives. And, mm. and a temptation for us is to think God acted in his life or God acted in the biblical figure's life, but God is not acting in my life. Yeah. And um, what we need to do is recognize, I was reading the story of Joseph recently in, in the book of Genesis. God is with Joseph, yes, when he is in power in Egypt, but God is equally with Joseph when he is in a prison in a dungeon. Yes. And that's true of us. Yes. Interestingly, you and again, without drawing societal comparisons or, or continental um, division, <laughs> one of the things that has become a, a feature of some of our recent news in, in the last few years has been the tendency in your own country to pull those statues down, that to, to decry them as representing something abhorrent, something that is to be scorned and, and uh, completely rejected. And uh, I, I guess we're not putting up a false, uh, false sense of militancy. Although maybe that, I mean you, you talk about the war, the war against men, which has that mm-hmm. militant dimension to its description. The the thought that's behind that militancy, that that uh, charge against what was the grand figures of humanity and the self definingness of modern ideologies in contrast almost a utopian cleansing of identity mm-hmm. any thoughts on that type of movement that that you've witnessed yeah at the end there you got onto something i was about to go to utopian cleansing um it's a kind of savage lockeanism uh mm. referring to john locke mm. And his idea that the human person is a tabula rasa, Mm. is a blank slate. There's a kind of savage form of that today where uh, you're supposed to rewire humanity and rewire figures of the past and deny those who had any failing in their existence. And I, I to respond to those pulling down statutes, statues, we don't say... Those figures were perfect. Those figures got everything right. How could you do this? We say we actually do the opposite. We do what we've been talking Mm. about in this conversation. And and we should be able to do this in Mm. schools and colleges and universities. We should be able to treat historical figures as if they were complex people. Yes. 
Christianity, by the way, again, thick reality, like we were yes. talking about. Yes. Christianity is is the worldview, actually. It's often identified with thin reality, mm. but it's actually the faith that, done rightly, gives voice to complex humanity. Mm. You think of David, the man after God's own heart who slays mm. uh, the husband of the woman he seduces. Um, and he is yet a man after God's own heart. So we <laughs> we have categories for complexity as Christians. Mm-hmm. The ones who don't, the ones who they're not doing any justice to the complexity of the human condition, mm. the human person are the ones who, yes, would pull down statues of heroes, uh, of, of grand figures. And, and they're not just pulling down statues of Washington or someone like this, some soldier from the American Civil War. They're they're pulling down the very idea Mm. that there is nobility. Mm. They may not say that that baldly. They may not even know that consciously, Mm. but they are rejecting heroism, even as they themselves are thinking of themselves as heroes. Mm. Um, So there's an irony there. Uh, You you destroy the real heroes, at least some of them. uh, and, and, And yet you anoint yourself as a hero for doing so. Yeah. And you, and in so doing, you doubly condemn yourself. Yeah, yeah. It, 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 you're describing a, a very, um, it's it's more than ironic, and it? It, in, that in itself is a something of a tragedy. Where, in the name of tolerance, you become intolerant. In the name of of um, a, a redefining of of a diversity of humanity, you become exclusive and and denounce individuals who were complex in themselves, as, as you describe. I guess that is, I was going to ask you a question around the, the notion of some of that history, some of the response of the modern world to, to uh, dismantle the historical nature of gender and identity and society and to supplant it with a, a redefined would appear to some people to be well motivated that there there was violence perpetrated that there was inequality that there was exploitation that there was stereotypes that were unhelpful and the the patriarchy as it's been referred to is worthy of overthrow your response to that? That's a very complex question. Um, Neil Ferguson has been good on this, as has Andrew Roberts, both of them uh, British by background. They've both written well to these issues. Yeah, I mean, colonialism has a very checkered past, to be sure. What's problematic, though, is saying because something has a checkered past, it therefore did nothing good. It yielded yes. no good. Yes. Um, so it is correct to say this movement has flaws in it, and some of them are deep. It's correct. Let, and therefore, let's not repeat those flaws. Good. Yes. Let's not. Not correct to say this movement has flaws in it, some of them deep. And so we can learn nothing from it. And in fact, yes. we should burn it down and erase it from the pages of history. And in so doing, recognize no strengths or advantages we have reaped from it. Yes. Um, that's the problem. So, so yes. young people with regard to history, we now we're now we seem to be on history as a topic. Young people with history are being given only a kind of 
uh, uh, cleansed, sanitized mm-hmm. vision of history, where unless the movement or individual in question got everything right, you can't in any way appreciate it. Yes. And this is why um, there are massive demonstrations in favor of Hamas, for example, in London. Uh, it's because the the English people have had their history taken away from them because Mm. there are real sins and failings Mm. in their past. Mm. There Mm. are real sins and failings in their past, just as in America, just as in every society. But that doesn't mean that there is not a heritage that has some good to it. Yeah, I I get that. that It comes back to our, well, I think for me, it reconnects with the idea of re-enchanting. The notion that there is a there's a bigger thing going on, and there are forces of good, and there are forces of evil, and there is light, and there is dark, and we, as a society and as individuals, need to find where we can leave the dark and enter the light, where we can let go of the the, the error and embrace the truth, and in, yes. to to deny that as a fundamental part of the creation is one of the things that's leading us astray. G.K. Chesterton writes about the the well-intentioned the well-intentionedness of the modern world. That uh, he he makes a description to say, you know, the world is not evil. The world is in some ways too good, in that it pursues particular virtues disconnected from reality, disconnected from truth. And in, and I wonder whether that's some degree of what's happening here that e- that equality or tolerance or acceptance becomes the benchmark, becomes the pinnacle of virtue, disconnected from other equally important, significant aspects of of truthfulness or of virtue. Yeah, and I think you're right. Your supposition is right. And here again, those who are dynamiting the past, erasing the past, are the same ones who are selling themselves as the answer Mm. and there is there is a profound problem there it's Mm. not a small problem it's a it's a category five hurricane of a problem where Mm. they're saying the people of the past are bad and need to be erased but we are the ones who have it figured out when in Mm. reality there's real light in the past it's not Mm. all light Mm. it's not all light but there's real light there Mm. and you need to behold it and you need mm. you need to look into it and you need to mm. go there and see what is light there and mm. and be influenced by it and learn from it but instead of learning from it you're extinguishing it mm. and so young people are being trained in exactly the wrong instincts mm. uh, and this is where the christian faith cuts in once again mm. uh with regard to the patriarchy just to resurface that for a second um First of all, what is the patriarchy? It sounds like the world's worst advertise, advertising agency. But <laughs> beyond that, ha- have have men sinned badly in years past? Yes. Does that mean, though, that you therefore banish men from leadership or something like this or call mm. strong men toxic? Is that the move mm. to make? Mm. No. The thing to do is to go back and 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 see where there's light. Mm. and learn from the light and mm. and have some of it reflect on you and then you go forward into mm. an uncertain future mm. having learned from it but not having gone in 
not having gone there to extinguish mm. what is light, what light there is to be found. Mm. Yeah, that's that's wonderful, Dr. Strand. Thank you so much for those concluding. I, I, I guess one final thought from me before I come back to the notion of individual response to this is the the characterizing of identity simply with the notion of of your genderedness rather than your your createdness is one of the problems right is if if there is a type of masculinity that is excessive or is exploitive then let's call that out and not dismiss the whole category of masculine let's find what is the createdness of a godly a godly expression of the, the things that he's put in place which comes back to that notion I said to you earlier that the society at large, the ideologies and the and the politics that young people, in fact, all of us are now uh, wallowing our way through, which de- denies the notion of being active and being assertive and and being purposeful. I'm conscious that in some de- to, or at least to some degree, there may be something similar that that is uh, spoken about in Christian circles, that it is that it is not good to be ambitious, that it is not good to have goals for yourself, to work hard, and, and the right thing is just to sit back and let God work it out. That, that doesn't necessarily seem to be your story. I wonder whether you could reflect a little bit on that for, for any of our, our listeners who might be I'm just going to leave it to God and come what may. The more you go on in the Christian faith, the more you find you wait on God and you are totally dependent on God. But the form of total dependence that the Christian life takes hold of, expresses in us, is not exactly what we'd, what we'd expect. The total dependence of the Christian found in the Bible is it is actually a bit ironically there's that word again a very active dependence mm. it's not a passive dependence where you do nothing mm. it is an it is an active dependence where you risk much and mm. god has everything sewed up from the beginning god has written out every one of our days god has not only allowed trials and challenges and failings even in our lives God has appointed all of that, to use a more Mm. technical biblical Mm. term. We don't experience that in terms of a printed out list of directions for the day, you know, turn by turn maps or something. We don't have that. We don't have any of it. Uh, And yet God has it all sewed up. But in terms of our experience, we are called into a life of active dependence Mm. where we we set out and we try hard and we risk much and and um and god works through all of that and and Mm. men are called to lead out in that Mm. um it is better today in cultural terms to not risk and thus not risk uh bad verdicts upon you Mm. than to risk and have challenging consequences arise the Bible has it the opposite. In the Bible, it's better to to launch out and and live boldly for King Jesus. Amen. It's better to to proclaim Christ and take the consequences as they come than to stay silent 
and risk uh, nothing. And so what we need to recover in our boys and in our youth in general is a sense of um, godly adventuresomeness. We we need to let kids um, adventure. We need to feed them the Christian story as something exciting Mm. and not merely something soothing. We need to give them a Jesus from the pulpit who has fire in his eyes, not a Jesus who is here fundamentally to tuck everybody in at night, but a Jesus who actually comes to you as you're sleeping and shakes you awake and you wake up and you're startled and you're, you're, you're getting your bearings. And there's this kind face right here. Uh, But there's fire in the eyes. The eyes are kind in an Aslan kind of way, but there's fire in them. And And he says, come on, let's go. Yeah. We've got work to do. And with that, he's gone. Yeah. And and so you're not walking step by step. You're flying behind him. That's that's true Christianity. And and some of that spirit, uh, as as I know we're wrapping up, is found in the Narnia books. I don't yes. agree with everything in them. But there's some of the, C.S. Lewis got some very key things that lots of people don't get. Um, one of them is the sense of northernness and transcendence and majesty of God of the Aslan figure. And another of, of those dimensions is the sense of um, spirited adventure. Amen. Uh, that courses through true biblical Christianity. Amen. I, I appreciate that. And that, that call come follow. And the notion that it's not just a gentle stroll along the lakefront, but it's into territory and into areas of, of risk and challenge. And that, that same, creation mandate to take dominion exercise dominion is is part of god's call to us all because he's hardwired that need into us i also appreciate um dr strand the notion that 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 challenge isn't always abseiling or whitewater rafting or hiking or physical that that challenge can be intellectual and it can be it can be moral and part of crafting our life that is rich and full I want to thank you for your time. I want to thank you for the work that you've done in the service of God and, and his people in thinking through the issues that you have and of representing them in the work that you've produced and for the difference that that is making for the way people understand the God that calls them and themselves that, that need to be surrendered to his, his lordship. We continue to pray that he will equip you and lead you in all the paths of righteousness that he has planned for you. Thank you. That's very kind. And I've loved the discussion. And I, I, I pray with whatever else has been put on the table in this uh, little conversation, um, simply that we will think of ourselves as servants, because that's all I am. I, I truly am not anything. Uh, I'm just a servant. I'm just a footman in a, in a great castle of God. Mm. Um, but, but, but uh, but it's I guess a scripture like that isn't. I'd rather be a, a, a footman <laughs> in your house. Uh, exactly. That is a biblical thing, I think. Dr. Strand, thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs>